proceeding from the great commission given by Jesus to make disciples of all nations, the early church exploded and countless souls were made new by the atoning work of Christ. Dead hearts were made alive and churches sprouted up throughout the world. As a need for clear and concise biblical interpretation arose, the Reformed Confessions of the Faith were written and still have a major impact on the Church today. The Confessional Collective desires to see healthy, theologically sound churches planted and on mission for the Kingdom of Christ. Welcome to the Confessional Collective. Welcome to the Confessional Collective, where truth meets mission. My name is Aaron Carr, and I am your host, as well as the pastor of First Presbyterian Church of Trenton, Michigan. The Collective is a band of confessing pastors, planters, and churchmen, and each week we have a confessional brother come share their wisdom and experience. In today's podcast, we have pastor and author Jason Halopoulos. Jason, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me, Aaron. It's a delight, and uh, glad to be with your listeners. Jason, could you just give us a quick uh, bio of who you are and what you've been up to? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, I am... 39 years old. I grew up in central Illinois, in Springfield, Illinois, and uh, grew up, uh, by the time I was in junior high, I was a self-declared atheist, and um, God was gracious to me when I went off to college. I would promised some friends I would go to a campus ministry, and uh, it was there that I heard the gospel for the first time, and sat under preaching, and uh, Lord drew me to himself there through that campus ministry, and Came to Saving Faith there. Uh, met my wife in that campus ministry. We got married. We've been eighteen. Uh, been married for eighteen years. Got married between my junior and senior year there. Uh, when I was uh, done with school there, I was just hungry to learn the scriptures. So I asked people, "How do you learn the scriptures?" <clears throat> and uh, they said, "You go to seminary." So we packed up our bags and we went to seminary because uh, I wanted to learn the scriptures. Um. So we actually head off to Dallas Theological Seminary, and I did a four-year uh, degree down there at THM, and graduated from there, and pastored in North Carolina for a few years, and was a church planner for five years, and been here at uh, University Reformed Church for about five years now. Have two kids, uh, both adopted from Taiwan, uh, Ethan, who is seven, and Grayson, who's ten years old. I have to ask, as a guy who went off to school at Dallas Theological Seminary, and now you're in a confessional Presbyterian denomination, um, what was that journey like from dispensational theology to covenant theology? Well, you know, when I, when I went down to seminary, like I said, I didn't know the Bible. I didn't know theology. Uh, can remember my campus pastor warning me about two things when I went off to seminary. He said, steer clear of dispensationalism and steer clear of Calvinism. <laughs> and so, so th those are the two warnings. And uh, when I was there at DTS, uh, I just I can remember we started attending a PCA church pretty quickly um, because my wife was nannying for a family. And so we ended up going to the church they were going to, not knowing one church from another. And as we were doing so, uh, it began to hit me that what I was hearing on Sunday morning was different from what I was hearing in the classroom, and I just didn't have the categories for it. And so I came home one day and just told my wife, I am getting confused. I, I don't even have the categories to be able to know what I'm hearing and what uh, kind of uh, can to put it in or what uh, how to line things. And so I said, I, I just can't do this. I'm getting confused. So we stopped going to the PCA church for a couple of years and went to a Bible church and it was during that time that I became reformed and uh, grabbed a hold of covenant theology. Uh, there were a number of different factors. Uh, one was I was a historical theology major and so reading uh, Jonathan Edwards and John Calvin and John Owen and uh, that had a huge impact on me. The, the other was there was a founding father of the PCA that was down there at Dallas at the time. His name is Paul Settle. And he used to have, on Saturday mornings, a Westminster, Westminster Confession of a study group for DTS students at his home. Uh, and we would get there about 7 o'clock. His wife, Georgia, would cook us a big breakfast, and we would study the confession together on Saturday mornings. And I bet there are probably 20 or 25 guys 
my age that are in the PCA from DTS because of those Saturday morning groups. When you would go through the confession together, would you just start at the beginning and just walk the way through it, or did you pick certain categories to talk about? Yeah, we did a few different things. So we did just walk through the confession together, and we were reading uh, commentaries on the confession together. So I think at the time uh, we were reading uh, Hodges' commentary on the confession and kind of talking through it together. We also uh, would do different books, so different things that were helping us to wrestle through dispensationalism and covenant theology. I remember reading uh, Hallowerda's book, uh, uh, Israel, One Covenant or Two, I think it's called something like that, and uh, reading that and reading uh, O. Palmer Robinson's uh, Christ of the Covenants. And we were working through those books together, so just, just thinking through things. And, you know, it was a... I look back and just think, ah, oh, it was just an incredible blessing. It the time that he gave to us as young men and uh, we were struggling through these things and there were just great opportunities. I remember one morning it was Ed Clowney, who was at the time the president of Westminster Theological Seminary had come down to Dallas and was staying with Paul Settle. So it was Paul Settle and Ed Clowney and three of us DTS students going through Romans nine and 10 and 11 together. And uh, just look back on that and just think, uh, Lord was, incredibly gracious to me and blessed me in wonderful ways just through those Saturday mornings. I have to ask this, as a guy who was coming from uh, Dallas, being introduced to Reformed Confessions, did you ever struggle with the no creed but the Bible kind of uh, position? Yeah, because I actually, what I came to faith in, the college ministry I came to faith in was uh, part of the Christian church, which is kind of here in the Midwest and comes out of that Campbellite movement, which actually, um, that's where that phrase comes from. You know, no creed, but the Bible comes from that movement in the 1800s. So, uh, yeah, that, that was a, I remember sitting in the PCA church when we were worshiping there and they would read, um, you know, have a time of corporate confession on Sunday mornings, um, from the confession of faith. And, I can remember telling my wife at the time, we are not going to say that with them. And, <laughs> uh, you know, when they read the Bible, we'll listen. We're not going to say the confessions. And it was a huge struggle for me. Uh, now I, uh, I can't, it, it's hard to think about living the Christian life, let alone pastoring without, uh, the confessional foundations that we have and relying upon the, the giants that have come before us and the things that the church has wrestled through and the great teachers of the church and uh, having all of this to undergird our ministries is one of the great blessings that we enjoy today. Absolutely. Standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before. Um, speaking to that, who are some of the early um, individuals? You've already mentioned Owen and Calvin, those old dead guys that you would really recommend to young guys to begin to, to swoop up and begin buying at bookstores and begin reading. You know, as I like to say, if I was a Catholic, my patron saint would be Jonathan Edwards. Hmm. Uh, he, uh, he was really the person that grabbed a hold of me first. Uh, when I was at Dallas and was struggling with what I believed theologically, I remember picking up Jonathan Edwards, the end for which God created the world and reading that. And it was, it was life changing for me to, to think that God created all things for his glory. And that began to put everything in perspective. And, and when I read Edwards, um, for me, it was, uh, he has become one of my best friends. Uh, and, and I knew it as soon as I picked him up and began reading because I found someone that, uh, was wrestling with things um, at an intellectual level, and yet he was aimed at the affections. Uh, mm. There was a great love for God, a great passion for God, um, and yet he was wrestling with the deep things. And uh, that just resonated with me. And so I, I read a lot of Edwards, still read a lot of Edwards. Um, he is often who I go to to refresh my soul. Um, other people that have had a huge impact on me, you know, the, the Puritans uh, I have benefited from, uh, probably pastorally more than any other group of people that I found uh, their works just to be incredibly helpful in 
training me to think through how to minister to people um, and how to convey truth. Uh, you know, I, I often tell people that um, if you want to start reading the Puritans, I, I, I consider Thomas Watson the entry gate to the Puritans. He is absolutely yes. He's easy to read. He's he paints pictures in your mind as you read. Um, he has wonderful illustrations. Uh, so love Watson. Uh, I love uh, Richard Baxter. Um, I love uh, Christopher Love. Um, probably other people that have had a huge impact on me that are dead are J.C. Ryle. Uh, I have benefited greatly from Ryle's uh, writings. You know uh, his book on holiness and his book on practical religion. Um, have had a huge impact on me. What about uh, modern writers? Is there anybody that you read today that brings conviction, kind of punches you in the stomach, and makes you kind of stop, almost like Jonathan Edwards did? Yeah, that's that's a good question. Um, you know, John Murray does that for me theologically. He, he's not somebody that's going to. He doesn't move my affections when I read him, but but he uh, he really helps me to think theologically. Uh, more modern day even would be um, like a commentator like Ralph Davis. Um, I find uh, his his uh, commentaries on the Old Testament are are very stirring to me and encourage me. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson is uh, my favorite preacher and writer. Um, I find that uh, he has just that tincture about him where. Uh, everything that he writes and every sermon that I've heard him preach, it it just moves me in Christ. It enlivens me in Christ. I find that I can't walk away from having read him or heard him and not think about Christ. Um, hmm. And uh, th- that is that's someone you want to read and that's someone you want to listen to. And so he does that for me. Following yeah. seminary and this kind of. Uh, shift in your thinking, this the shift in your belief system that God chose you before you chose him, uh, this idea that uh, there is a clear understanding of the way the scripture um, flows and uh, unfolds, the redemptive historical approach, covenants being the main kind of contextual uh, uh, arm of that. When you began to put that together and then began to move towards ministry, was it right into the PCA? Did you stop anywhere else? Did you uh, begin to wonder where you fit in in far as ministry, or was it just clearly for you you're a Presbyterian? Yeah, you know, I I was working uh, full-time while I was doing seminary, and so I was working at an insurance company, and there were a group of seminary students that worked there together, and there were probably a, a handful of us, maybe five or six of us, that were pretty good friends and would talk about theological things throughout the day when we had an opportunity. And we kind of all went through this migration together where we came in Arminian and we eventually became Calvinists. And then I would say we, we became Reformed where we were uh, beginning to adopt the confessions and think confessionally. And then uh, most of us then became Presbyterian uh, where uh, the the ecclesiology um, we also adopted and saw that as the teaching of the scriptures, um, and so it was. It was kind of a migration through each of those things. Uh, it was not easy for me. I, I, uh, there are two things that stand up days that stand up my li- uh, my mind. One was when I was driving home from work one night with my wife, and I was explaining to her what these guys were saying to me and the scriptures we were reading and thinking through about Calvinism. And I remember just bursting into tears as we were uh, parked outside our apartment building and uh, and saying to her, I, and to my shame, I, I said to her, I said, if this is the God of the scriptures, I, I don't want to believe in him. Hmm. Uh, it, it was a very hard hurdle for me to get over. But even in that moment, I look back and think, you know, the fact that I was weeping and that I was so disturbed by it was evidence that the Lord was showing me that, um, that this was the truth of the scriptures. And, and now I find it, uh, you know, one of the most uh, delightful things in our world is that God is sovereign and that he ordains all things and, that it is he, as you said, that chooses us. And 
that leads us to himself. The other, probably the biggest hurdle, though, was baptism. Right. And I came from that Christian uh, background and Campbellite movement. And, uh, you know, I, I can remember sitting in a PCA church one morning and they were baptizing a child and that baby was screaming its head off. And I elbowed <laughs> my wife and I said, see, even that baby knows he's not supposed to be baptized. <laughs> Uh, but uh, now I also find that to be one of the, the sweetest uh, doctrines of the Christian life. It, it points to this reality, doesn't it, that, that we are helpless and uh, that it is the Lord himself who saves us. And it's a sign and seal of his covenant and uh, his working in our lives. What about the, uh, the, the, the other sacrament, the Lord's Supper, and the truer meaning, um, the real presence of Christ there spiritually? How did how did that affect you, or was that something that it was a little easier to swallow? Yeah, you know, it was easier to swallow. I think what's interesting though is in in our contemporary thinking, baptism is often the bigger hurdle, and I think it's because we live in this American context where, thank God, uh, Baptists have had a wonderful impact upon this country, um, and He's used the Baptist Church mightily. But we see that as the bigger hurdle, and yet you look historically, and the Lord's table has been the greater source of disagreement among Christians and among different denominations um, and uh, streams coming out of the Reformation. Uh, and I, you know, as I was wrestling with uh, with Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper and the Reformed view of the Lord's Supper, um, you know, Zwingli probably even the uh, the beginning of it there. Uh, it was not something that was hard for me to grab a hold of. I rather found it uh, pretty obvious from the scriptures. You know, when when Paul was warning the Corinthian church that they will eat and drink damnation upon themselves, that some have fallen asleep uh, because they've come to the table unworthily. Uh, to me, that that that's pretty clear. That it's more than just a bare sign that. There is grace that's being uh, imparted by the Spirit through that sacrament, and there is a sealing uh, property to the sacrament. And, um, and I, I thought that was that was clear from the very outset as I began to read Calvin on these things. Hmm. So, as these shifts theologically were happening, your first call to ministry was where? Uh, I did a year internship. Uh, pastoral internship there at Park Cities Presbyterian Church, which is a large PCA church there in Dallas. And then from there, I, I received a call uh, to a church in North Carolina, PCA church there, uh, as their uh, family and uh, youth pastor. And so I uh, was there for uh, three years as an assistant pastor there. And then from there, I went to East Lansing, uh, was called as a church planter, uh, to come here to East Lansing and to plant a PCA church. And so labored as a church planner for five years and then moved over to University Reformed Church here in East Lansing um, about five years ago now. Let's talk a little bit about your years as a church planter. Now, um, in doing that, you were kind of at the beginning stages of when church planting was just really becoming uh, popular. And in doing that, um, what what was that like, that calling and how did you identify that calling? And then why did you um, leave that to go to University Reformed Church? Yeah, so I was in North Carolina and met a small group of people uh, that were looking to start a PCA church in East Lansing. And uh, we felt called to this work, my wife and I. And uh, so we journeyed out here. And, uh, you know, I, I can remember sitting down with the mother church's uh, session, their elders, and when they were getting ready to call me to, to plant this church, and uh, they asked me, they, they said, Jason, are you called to be a church planter? And I said at the time, I said, you know, I, I'm not, I don't know that I'm called to be a church planter. I'm called to be a pastor. Um, and, you know, as, as a pastor, I, I'm committed to preaching the word and ministering the sacraments rightly and praying and discipling and evangelizing. And I, I don't see a lot of difference between being a church planter and a pastor in that regard. I'm going to be committed to these same things. And 
And, and I still agree with that. I think that's right. I, I, I believe in ordinary means ministry. I believe that we use the means that God has given to us. And that means preaching the word. And that means administering the sacraments. That means praying. That means being busy about discipleship and evangelism. I think, though, looking back, uh, I was also a little naive. Uh, I think now, as I think about church planting, I think there's also some characteristics that should mark a church planter that are at least helpful for a church planter. Um, you know, one of them, he needs to be able to multitask uh, well uh, because he's doing all kinds of things. He's washing nursery toys and putting together orders of worship and uh, he's preaching and he's discipling and he's putting together volunteer teams and he's signing contracts for renting space and, and trying to figure all of those things out. So he has to be a multitasker. Um, he also has to be, I think, someone that has um, the ability to uh, wade through conflict. Um, in a church planning setting, he is usually alone. Um, sometimes a team goes in. I think that's always good. But usually there's not another elder or another pastor that's there with him. And so it means that when there are struggles in the church and uh, people uh, have problems with the church's leadership. It's all directed at the pastor. And when there are conflicts within the church, he is the one that has to mediate it because uh, there's nobody else to do so. And so I think it has to be a man that has thick skin, uh, but a tender heart. Uh, but maybe most importantly, I think looking back, I think I, I wish I would have known this better going in um, is that, I think a church planner more than anything has to be a man that's marked by perseverance. Uh, he, he has to be a man that, that knows that he's committing to this work for three or four or five or six or seven or eight years. And, uh, because there are a lot of highs and there's a lot of lows in church planning. There's, there's a lot of times where it looks like, you know, that things are succeeding and there's a lot of times that it looks like there are setbacks and uh, he has to be a man that, that can persevere and ride those highs and lows and not get too high and not get too low. And, um, and, you know, it's laboring to see this work completed so that hopefully this church is here to, in that area to, to bless that region for generations upon generations. Now, when you made the decision, um, to, um, step out of Providence PCA, which was the church plant, into University Reform Church that was in the summer of 2012. Explain that decision and how in the process you made through that transition. Yeah, that, that was a uh, was a very hard time for us in ministry. Uh, you know, being a church planner there for uh, five years. Uh, you know, as most church planners know, those probably listening to this podcast, it, it it is something you're throwing your whole life into. Um, it's what you're eating and breathing and sleeping. And, um, you know, we had a small group of people after we grew about 20% each year, um, in people. And, you know, by that, uh, fifth year, it looked like the church, uh, was going to be launched and, uh, that we were going to, to have an established church. And there was a matter of about three weeks where, I was approached by 70% of the of families in the congregation to let me know that they were moving out of state. Um, wow. In about a three-week period, they told me this, that about 70% of the congregation was going to move within a three-month time span. Uh, this was, you know, when the economy really hit Michigan hard. Sure. And a lot of our people were moving and taking jobs other places. And, uh that was a huge blow to us, uh, to the whole church plant, to all these families, to us, of course, my wife and I. And uh, we were tired after five years. And so there was a lot of discussion about, can, can we, it would really have to be a restart. That's what we'd have to do. And we, we would be starting with, you know, maybe 12, 15 people again. And, um, you know, in wrestling through that, there were, there were a lot of other things that were involved in that, but uh, we, we decided that uh, that the presbytery in the area um, was wrestling through that and, and gave advice that they thought, uh, you know, we should look at moving on. Um, and uh, University Reformed Church at the time was looking to bring somebody on staff. Kevin uh, DeYoung, who is the senior pastor of this church, uh, he and I had become... Uh, dear friends, when I moved to the area to plant a church, 
Uh, someone had said there's a young pastor your age across town. You should get to know him. So he and I got together for lunch and just hit it off. And so we started getting together every two weeks or so for accountability and uh, to pray together and think through things theologically together. And so when the church plant was coming to a close uh, for me, uh, you know, Kevin said, look, we're, we're, we're looking to hire a position here at URC. would really like you to apply. Um, they were looking um, for something that I, I wasn't interested in. I said, you know, I don't have a lot of interest in that, Kevin. So I began candidating around the country. Um, and uh, he kept, he kept kind of, giving me calls and nudges. So eventually I came in for an interview. They decided to change the job description to kind of match uh, more my gift set. And uh, it was, it was a, uh, a blessing of the Lord. I think, you know, we had been through some real trials in the church plant and uh, God was gracious to us as a family to give us just some time to rest here at URC and not carry the burden of being the senior pastor or the solo pastor or church planter. Um, I, I think it was also probably a blessing to these congregations that we had been interviewing with at the time and had thought about going to and um, probably spared them some as well and uh, just just allowed us to get our feet back under us after uh, a lot of years of hard labor and a lot of just difficult things that we went through. So. Now, now you, ju- you left um, a PCA church plant and you joined the RCA, not you yourself because you stayed a PCA pastor, but you were serving out of bounds in an RCA church. And of course, many of us are aware of the journey of University Reformed Church and Kevin DeYoung from the RCA into the PCA. And here you were kind of in the in the midst of that wilderness time and that change. But um, what were some of the issues that brought um, University Reformed Church from the RCA into the PCA? Yeah, uh, you know, URC was started uh, as an RCA church. Um, we celebrated our 50-year anniversary, actually, this year. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it labored long and hard in the RCA. Um, and the RCA has a wonderful history as a denomination, but it has changed a lot uh, over the last, uh, especially 10, 15 years. And some of the issues that we were concerned about um, were uh, things such as egalitarianism and complementarianism. Uh, the RCA has, uh, has become much more of egalitarian uh, denomination, and it's been very hard for us as we train up men here at URC um, to become pastors, and then we send them off to seminary. Uh, it's been close to impossible for uh, former pastoral interns here that are complementarians to to enter into the RCA as complementarians. Um, so that, that was of great concern to us. Um, they also changed their confessional standards, so they, they added a confession, um, that uh, we didn't believe rises to the level of a confession, uh, the Belhar Confession, which uh, no one's quite sure exactly everything that it means. And um, that was a concern. Also concerned about uh, the advances in homosexuality within and accepting that within the RCA. Uh, officially, the RCA has not, uh, but it has some... Uh, lesbian pastors, openly lesbian pastors that are serving within uh, RCA churches and there is no discipline of these uh, of these women and we have RCA there are RCA churches around the country that are open and affirming congregations and pushing that agenda more and more um, and the RCA has chosen uh, not to stand against these things um, though it hasn't how, officially changed its policy. How did you bring your people along? in that change? Was that something step by step? Was it um, something that caught the congregation a little bit off guard? Or I mean, because I know that you had an overwhelming response from the congregation when the vote was taken in, in support of the change. But how did you bring the congregation to that place? Yeah, with something like this, uh, it, it can never be something that you just spur on the congregation. So it was a long process. Uh, the elders really uh, led the way here at URC. Um, we put together an elder committee. Um, well, I guess elders and deacons. Um, Kevin and I were not on that committee, so it was a group of elders and deacons that 
kind of headed up that committee and uh, began the process of uh, giving information to the congregation. They held a lot of town hall meetings where they explained the issues and what the PCA was, what the RCA was. Um, we had a lot of small groups. We had a lot of Sunday schools about it. We put together a 60-page um, a document that uh, that was handed out to the congregation, um, you know, and making the case and, and helping them to see that. we uh, The RCA, part of their rules are is that they appoint a subcommittee themselves that comes in of pastors and elders that has dialogue with the congregation and then with the elders and then with the pastors uh, to uh, discern the mind of the congregation in it. And so I think our congregation be able to ask them questions and, and give some pushback uh, about things and not being satisfied with answers there. So it was a long process. It took it took us a couple of years uh and even longer with the elder board that the elders wrestled with this this idea for uh, at least four or five years. And uh, it, it was not a quick decision. It was not an easy decision. It was actually a very painful decision. The URC has had a long history with the RCA. And, and we believe that uh, there are just there are a lot of faithful churches in the RCA and a lot of faithful brothers and sisters in the RCA. Uh, we, but. But believe that this was the best thing for URC and that we fit better in the PCA than we do the RCA. Sure. I'd like to uh, step back just a couple of steps where you talked about the Bellhart Confession. And uh, there's always a lot of discussion about the um, should we be writing new confessions? Should we be writing new creeds? And I know that uh, recently Ligonier writ one, wrote one that different people have uh, cited on whether that was a good thing or not. But specifically to the Bellhard, I know that you said that it, what, it really wasn't a good confessional statement. And so I want to kind of just jump off there for a few seconds and ask the question, do you think it's a good thing to be writing new confessions and creeds do we have the type of men that should be doing that and if so or if not what, is, what does that look like yeah I, I i am in favor of the church writing new confessions and creeds um yeah i, I think we we want to be careful here i think you know we have we have a long history of uh, creeds that we stand upon so things like the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed and uh, these kind of things. We, 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 want to, uh, we want to be using those in our services. We want to be teaching our people those. Um, when we take confessions like the Westminster Confession or the Belgian Confession or take some of the catechisms like the Westminster Shorter or Larger or the Heidelberg Catechism or um, things such as this, these are, these are confessions that have stood the test of time. Uh, along with these creeds. And uh, so these are things that we want to disseminate to our people. We want to rely upon. We want to encourage um, people to understand and to read. And there's a lot of um, theological rigor and discussion and uh, testing that has gone on with these documents. But having said that, I think there is a place for writing new confessions um, I think, though, that's the duty of the church, and so um, I, I think it should be an action of the church. I'm not as excited about parachurch organizations writing confessions. I think uh, that can be good. I think uh, it can be helpful, but I think it's even more helpful if the church is gathering together to write a confession. So if, uh, you know, the uh, Aaron, you serve in the the EPC, if the EPC and the PCA and the OPC or all these NAPARC, you know, congregations were getting together and denominations and uh, trying to write uh, a new confession on, I don't know, the Holy Spirit together, uh, I, I think that can be incredibly beneficial for the church. We, we, have, we have a lot of gifted men, uh, and we have also the foundation of all the confessions that have come before us to stand upon. So, I'm not opposed to it. I just want to do it carefully and uh, and don't want to abandon everything that we have already uh, that we already have and that has stood the test of time. What are some of the reasons you think a um, a parachurch should not write and a church should? Uh, clarify that for some of our listeners who may be new to this discussion. 
Yeah, there's accountability within the church itself. So uh, a court of the church uh, is held accountable by the other courts of the church and the members of that court. And so uh, it's something that not a board can decide. It's not something that a handful of men can decide. Um, But rather it's something that that a whole church with all the gifts present is, is adopting. And so I think it's helpful to have all of these spiritual gifts and um, men that are gifted in different ways coming together to examine such a confession and to hash through and to decide, yeah, this this wording is not the most helpful or is uh, not the most exact. Um, and, and I think with that, the Lord chooses to work through the church and that is his ordained means. And uh, I trust the work of the spirit within the courts of the church. Um, and, and I want to rely upon that, believing that, um, that, that we're, we're going to trust how God has chosen to work among his people. Now, Carl Truman has went on record to say that um, for like the Ligonier example, he says that's the brand kind of coming into the church and that's dangerous. Would you agree with that? Or is that a little harsh in your words? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I, I applaud Ligonier for wanting to think through Christology and uh, for wanting to put together a, uh, a new confession. I, I'm not opposed to that. Um, I, I think uh, I think it is more beneficial, though, for, for the kingdom if the church itself is doing it. So uh, maybe something like this in, encourages... Uh, our churches to pick up the banner and to think through, or are, are there ways that we could supplement the confessions that we already have? Is there a reason to do so? Is it helpful? Um, and uh, I, I think that's a good thing to think through and, and maybe Ligonier doing this, it, it helps to encourage that and uh, help stimulate that discussion. Jason, I want to turn the page of our discussion to your philosophy of family ministry. Uh, a number of years ago, you wrote a book called Neglected Grace, Family Worship in the Christian Home. Uh, you you entitled it Neglected Grace, I'm assuming for a reason. Can you explain why you feel that is a neglected grace, though, family worship in the Christian home? Yeah, uh, we should probably talk about what family worship is first. You know, As I think about it, there are three realms of worship. There is corporate worship, which we do on Sunday morning. There is private worship, which is... Uh, what we do in our prayer closets and which evangelicalism has done a good job of, of promoting uh, those daily quiet times. The, the third wheel, if you will, is family worship. And that's where you gather with the people in your home uh, to read the scriptures and to pray and to sing. Um, and this has a long history in the church. Um, this is something that uh, marked Christian families for uh, generations and uh, even for a millennia and uh, and yet as I uh, pastor and as I'm in the homes of, of people and in the different pastorates that I've been in uh, I would say that the average Christian family uh, does not practice family worship and uh, finds it even strange or odd and hasn't heard much conversation about it and what used to mark Christian families I would say is by far and away absent from most Christian families uh, today. I, I know the Dutch, uh, they've maintained this tradition. Uh, Aaron, you and I both labor here in Michigan and West Michigan. A lot of Dutch families still practice family worship. But I, I would say that the general evangelical family uh, has never heard of family worship. They they probably pray with their kids before they go to bed at night or maybe they read a, you know, a, a storybook Bible with their kids uh, here and there. But haven't really thought about centering their home upon worship. And so I, I do see it as something that's neglected and, and should be um, the thing that marks a Christian home. One of the major biblical mandates that people often use in defense of family worship in the home is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And the, the what's known as the Shema and the responsibility of teaching the next generations uh, the one true God and worshiping Him. And 
as you look through that, what other biblical passages do you see that really build a foundation that this is this is important stuff? This is this is biblically commanded. Yeah, if we're looking, if we're looking to proof text it, and we're looking for a verse that says, "Thou shalt do family worship in your home." Uh, we're not going to find it in the scriptures. But what we see over and over in the scriptures and passages like you said, Deuteronomy 6, or I think one of my favorites is Psalm 78, where the psalmist is Asaph is talking about how we are to pass this on to the generations that come after us, that we're to tell them of the glorious deeds of the Lord and of the wonders that he has done. Um, if we are going to abide by what we see as this principle throughout the scriptures where we are entrusting the things that we have learned to the next generation where we're going to speak of the scriptures what who god is and what he has done if we're going to train our children and our homes in this um i don't know of a way that it actually happens um apart from family worship um because if you don't have something that, that helps to structure it, um, it's something that you think is getting done, but it's probably getting done a lot less than you actually think it is. Um, and so having a, a mechanism like family worship where uh, there is this daily time where your family is gathering together to hear the scriptures, to read the scriptures, to discuss the scriptures, to sing, to pray together, um, it is it is a, a means by which God can use to, to pass this faith on to the next generation. It's a means by which he centers our home upon Christ, where uh, we are gathering together to exalt Christ together as a Christian family. It begins to be the very thing that marks our family. Um, I know I often say, you know, I, I want my kids when they're leaving the house, I want them to look back and say, oh, you know, Dad, it was fun. We'd play catch in the backyard, or we would sit down and we'd watch a cooking show together, or things like that. But what I hope they say more than anything else is that when they leave the home, is that you know, mom and dad, they weren't perfect. Uh, they were sinners and they made a lot of errors. But one thing we know is that they loved the Lord, and they were concerned that we loved the Lord as well. And they centered our home upon worshiping God. That's what marked our family. That, that's the thing that we did together every single day. That's uh, rich. So. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. I I know from my own experience, I came from a home where that wasn't practiced. And I remember seeing that displayed to me and how much as a kid I longed for that. I remember my best friend whose family I saw it illustrated in, he kind of apologized in that young teenage way. You know, oh, I'm kind of embarrassed this is going on. I'm sorry, man. And I remember looking at him and saying, no, don't apologize. Mm. <laughs> this is so rich. I long for this. And I think it kind of put a, a aha moment for him that he maybe he wasn't appreciating something his parents were uh, giving him faithfully, yet somebody who wasn't getting it hungered for it. Yes. And so, no, I, I, I totally appreciate what you just said there. How do you think that confessions can help us in family worship? Yeah, so I, I uh, use the, the catechism. Uh, um, of course, uh, as we discussed earlier, I'm Presbyterian, so uh, I use the Westminster Shorter Catechism with my family. Uh, just to give you an illustration, I, I can remember uh, it, was probably, it was probably a year ago now. Um, uh, a Jehovah's Witness came to our front door and uh, they knocked on the door and there were two of them that were standing there and my daughter uh, came up and my son came up to stand next to me while I was dialoguing with them and uh, you know I, I was talking back and forth with this lady and and I was saying you know I was pressing home to her that we don't actually believe in the same God and and so I was asking her about Christ, and and I said, do you believe that Christ is eternal, the only begotten Son of God, that um, that he was not a created being? And uh, she, she said, she said no. She said, Christ, there was a time when he wasn't. He, he was created. And my daughter at the time, uh, eight or nine years old, kind of erupted all of a sudden. And she said, that's not true. God mm. is, she said, God is infinite. He's eternal. He's unchangeable in his being. And 
and w- what happened was it, is it's that catechism you know as we were going over that uh, we go over it each sunday together we we try and memorize together and um she was hearing the dialogue and she knew error when she heard it because wow. of the catechism and and not only that not only did she know error but it gave her boldness to speak the truth uh, and confidence to speak the truth and because it was something that had been ingrained in her mind and and what was beautiful in that moment was to see it also gripped her heart. I mean, it was something that offended her that this woman would say that Christ was created. And uh, that's, that's just a one example of the benefit that catechizing or the confessions can have uh, as, as we use them in family worship. Now, i got to ask, what does family worship look like in your home? kind of uh, help us to see it from the beginning to the end of it, kind of what elements uh, you use and participate. Yeah. So, you know, when we have um, other families over, we, we always ask them to, to do family worship with us. Uh, Lee and I last night had a counseling appointment with a couple that uh, I'll marry this summer. And so we we're doing premarital counseling with them. And so uh, they, they got there and we still hadn't done family worship together as a family. So I said, you know what, before I put the kids to bed and before we start our counseling appointment, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you guys to join us for family worship. And so we did our family worship and their comment as soon as we were done was, uh, cause we were talking about, do they, even as a couple now, do they read the scriptures together and pray together? And they said, no, you know, it's been a struggle for them, which I think most of us can identify with. And the comment that they made was, Jason, what you did was just so simple. I said, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just simple. It, um, all I do with my family is we read the scriptures. I ask some questions uh, to help my kids think through the passage. We pray a prayer and we sing a song. That's all that we do. So on some nights, uh, you know, it can be something that is 15 or 20 minutes long because my kids really have a lot of questions or they want to talk through things or we have an extended prayer time. But like that night, like last night, uh, it can be something that literally is seven minutes long. Uh, you know, it was we read through a psalm last night right now where we're at. Um, uh, we usually read through books of the Bible. Um, we've we just got done with James. And so asked my kids what they wanted to do, and they said, well, let's read some psalms. So, you know, it's fun right now for them. They're 10 and 7, so I, I alternate between nights and say, okay, Ethan, it's your turn, or Grayson, it's your turn. Name a number. And so, you know, last night I think my son uh, said, uh, you know, let, let's do Psalm 7 uh, because he was he's 7 years old. So we read through Psalm 7 last night. I asked them, you know, a handful of questions to help them think through the psalm. Uh, and then we prayed. Um, and last night what we did was just a prayer of thanksgiving. So I said, let's just pray a prayer of thanksgiving tonight. Let's just open it up and just pray things you're thankful for. So, yeah, they we, just, we call it popcorn prayer. We just kind of all throw out different things. So we're saying, God, we thank you for the beautiful sun that we saw today. We thank you for our family. We thank you for... Uh, the gift of your son dying on the cross for us, you know, and, and each member of the family is just doing that. And then because we, were, we had a counseling appointment as well after that, then we just sang the doxology together. Um, some nights we'll sing a hymn together. We'll open up the hymnals and uh, sing a hymn together or sing a good Christian song together. And uh, it, it's incredibly simple. It's not rocket science. Uh, it's not hard. What's hard is just consistently doing it. And that's mm. what's hard. And right. But as I was telling this young couple, you know, it, it it has the benefit of it's something that you just try and do every night. And in my home, uh, it doesn't happen every night. Uh, I would say on a good week, uh, we're doing it four or five times uh, a week. On a bad week, it's probably three times a week. Um, but it, it's something that that consistency, doing it, uh, you know, as much as you can every week over time, it has wonderful effect upon your family where like in my family, often our conversations are about what we've read in scripture together. Um, when we're sitting at the dinner table or 
just the theological and biblical knowledge that you all have is, is common because you're wrestling through things together as you're reading together. Or, um, you know, one of the great benefits that families uh, I've seen in my family, but other families have told me as well, is it just brings a lot of peace to the home because it, it's it's pretty hard to sit down and do family worship when you've sinned against each other and haven't confessed and asked for forgiveness or granted right. it. And so. Right. You know, we got to sit down. We're, we're going to do family worship together. Well, there are often, not often, but there there are nights that we have to say, look, there's there's been sin that that we've committed against each other today. We need to confess that. I need to confess that. Or, um, and that's that's been my experience too, as well. That that when you have that sin, the enemy wants to keep you away from the worship. But the 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 knowledge that we have to come together as a family does force us to. Um, really deal with our sin. And so that's a, a, a great point. I want to uh, kind of push in a little bit on um, this particular topic because currently at our church, we gather men and we're focusing on kind of a biblical manhood restored. And one of the discussions that's come up repeatedly through many of the men of our church um, is that as they came to the faith, they didn't feel prepared to lead their families. Some would say, I still don't feel like I'm leading my family well spiritually. Um, and the role of fathers in the family is obviously a important one. The Bible draws that out. It, it uh, describes the responsibility of the man in the home. We talk about being complementarian. We say this is a big deal. We want to raise up spiritual leaders. Um, I'm amazed by the number of men, though, who do say that they are not or feel unable to lead their spirit, their home spiritually. And what do you say to that? How do you help uh, feed these men and build them up so that they can lead properly? What are some practical aspects you maybe can give us there? Yeah, I would say that the starting point for any man is, is threefold. One is bring your family to church each week so that they're worshiping. Two is that you every day spend time reading the Bible and praying for your family every day. So you make that a priority. The third is that you start family worship in your home and try and do that daily. Now, now that's the one that often intimidates fathers and husbands, especially because they think I, I don't have the theological knowledge to lead a discussion through a chapter of the Bible or, um, Probably more so what men have told me is, I don't really know how to pray, and I don't know how to lead my family in prayer. And so, and so this is what I tell fathers is, look, you start very simply. You don't have to give a commentary on the passage. So just select a, a scripture and read it. Read a psalm together and just read it. It doesn't need any discussion. It doesn't need you to, uh, to wax eloquent about it. Uh, you just read it together. Just start simply. In prayer, just start praying the Lord's Prayer together. Or take one of those psalms, or take, for instance, Paul's uh, prayer in Ephesians 3, or somewhere like that, and just change the pronouns and make it your prayer. So pray those words and have your family pray it with you, but just change the pronouns from, from I to we. Um, and and pray that together. And, and over time, as you're attending to corporate worship, as you're reading the scriptures by yourself and, and praying to the Lord yourself, and as you're just simply doing family worship, he will find that he is growing spiritually and he's more and more comfortable with these things. He's more and more comfortable with scriptures. He's more and more comfortable coming to God in prayer. And he'll find that, you know what, he can ask a question about the passage during family worship, or he can even pray a prayer in front of the family that's not uh, a prayer that's already scripted. Uh, because these means of grace have been working on him in each of these realms, and he's growing in Christ. That's the encouragement of the means of grace. If we just participated in them, they're God's promise to us that he uses them. <laughs> and so whether it's the reading of Scripture or prayer, um, he's there and he's using that. And I love what you're saying, just even reading a psalm together. Um, another thing we've really encouraged, which I've already heard you say, is we're, we're encouraging some of our men that are practicing uh, family worship 
to invite the other families that aren't over to the house for pizza and then do worship together. Show and tell <laughs> in a sense of display that because that's how people become more confident in what they do. Like I said, I grew up in a home where it wasn't practiced. And so I lean on what I saw others do, and that's what I bring into my home. Yes. And so I think it's 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 some really great pointers you brought out uh, in this in this point. So thank you very much for that. Um, I want to again turn to one more section that I'd love to uh, kind of talk to you about with our uh, listeners, um, and that is I know that we just had John Payne on, and John Payne and you both belong to a network called Gospel Reformation Network, which is a PCA network. It's focused on helping the PCA ministers, and it's specifically focused on sanctification. And uh, recently I heard J.I. Packer say that he felt that the lack of holiness today was one of the biggest problems in the church. And I want to kind of just build on that. Do you see holiness as a real issue in the church today or a lack of holiness? Yeah, I do. I think there's a, a lack of uh, seriousness about our Christian faith, and I think that manifests itself in holiness. So, um I think we, we've downplayed uh, the call to holiness in our lives. Yeah, part of this, I think, is the um, the fallout of, of fundamentalism and uh, misunderstanding the call to holiness. And so, I, I think in our generation, there's been a reaction to that, um, that an overreaction, I would say, that where uh, people think to, to flee from the legalism that sometimes uh, was attached to. The fundamentalism uh, that they've dived headlong into antinomianism of uh, that there being no place for the law in the Christian life or that uh, we don't need to strive and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Um, and, and I think we've seen the effects of that. We, we probably don't have to look any farther than how many major uh, pastoral figures uh, we've seen fall in our own uh, circles over the past even three or four years um, who have uh, failed morally in a significant way. Um, and, and I think, you know, when we see that at, in the leadership of the church, um, that's probably a pretty good indication that uh, it's also something that is a struggle within uh, the membership of our churches. There's a lot of discussion over sanctification today. And um, some of it roots back to the old, uh, what do you do with Romans 7 and Paul? Is this prior to his conversion, or is this Paul after he's saved? As you kind of look at that, and as you wrestle through that, um, what, are, what are the hindrances of those who take this idea that we can be perfectly holy in this life, versus those who say, I can't be holy, I'm totally dependent upon God, and so therefore I'm just going to be myself and just just plead God's mercy and hopefully he'll make me holy. Because those are really where I see people fall in on both sides. Yeah, I think that's good, Aaron. You know, I would recommend to all your listeners uh, Ferguson's new book, Sinclair Ferguson's new book, to call it Life, Life in Christ or... Uh, life of Christ, something like that. Um, but where he is, the whole Christ, that's what it's called, the whole Christ. Um, he's wrestling through this, this very thing, looking at an old controversy in the, in the Scottish church called the Marrow Controversy. And, and, and Ferguson is incredibly helpful in this regard. And what he is pointing out is both legalism, this idea that I can somehow earn God's favor by my doing things, and Antinomianism, this idea, and we're saying these in very simplistic terms, but antinomianism where uh, there is no role of the law in my life and um, and I, I don't really need to, to grow in righteousness, that both of these errors, as he, as he says, they are non-identical twins from the same womb. Hmm. That is, they both have at their core the same problem, and, and it's this. It's that there's a lack of trust in the fatherhood of God. It's the old lie in the garden that Adam and Eve are tempted with. When the serpent comes to them and she and the serpent divorces the law of God from the person of God. 
So that now Eve, instead of looking around and seeing everything that she's been given, she all of a sudden looks at the one law that she's been given, the one prohibition that she can't eat from that tree, and she thinks that God is trying to keep her from something, and that he's not actually this gracious, giving, uh, loving Heavenly Father. And what Ferguson is pointing out is that legalism and antinomianism had that same problem. Legalism looks at it and says, look, God's not gracious, he's not loving, I have to earn my way to him. Antinomianism looks at the law and says, look, God's not gracious, he's not loving, he's given us this law which we can't meet, so we might as well just do nothing. And it's the same error, it's the same root error. It's a lack of acknowledging uh, the person of God and his care for us and his love for us. And so as we look at sanctification and we look at growing in the Christian life and, and striving and, and sweating by uh, the power of the work of the Spirit within us, um, this is actually uh, a gift of the Heavenly Father to us, where he is conforming us more and more to the likeness of Christ. And, and though we can't arrive at it perfectly in this life, um, it, it is a, a gift where he, he gives us his law and he gives us these means of grace to encourage us in this conformity to Christ so that we might enjoy more of him. Hmm. I know that the idea of differences between monergism and synergism have come up repeatedly in this discussion. And what, some of the people I've run into even more recently have taken a very strong monergistic view of sanctification and that God's going to take care of it, right? And then they they weaken the role that they play in this process. And yet we read in our own confession in chapter 13, it does say the power of sin ruling over the whole body is destroyed. And so there's a sense in which we're victorious because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, but yet that's not our experience. And so what what does this look like when we're beginning to fight sin and try to try to wrestle it out? Yeah, so, I mean, what you're pointing out is both Romans 6 and Romans 7 are, are both necessary for us to understand the Christian life. So Romans 6 is very clear. You, you look at the language that Paul is using, and it's dominion language all over the place. It says, sin no longer has dominion over you. It, shall not, it does not reign. It, it does not, what, look through it, uh, would encourage your listeners to look through it and, and look at all the language that he's using in Romans 6. It's the idea that sin used to sit upon the throne of our hearts. It used to dominate us. It used to rule us. We used to have to obey its dictates. But Paul is saying that in Christ you've been set free from that. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You don't have to obey it as we used to. So that's the great freedom that comes in Christ, is that I can choose to do righteousness. I can choose to kill the deeds of the body. I can choose to, to live under Christ. But then we get to Romans 7, and Paul's wrestling with the fact that those things that he wants to do, he doesn't do. And those things that he doesn't want to do, he does. And so by experience, he finds that, that it's a great trial, and often... We don't live as if as if we have dominion over sin. We give in again to the flesh because it's still there. We, we hearken back to that old nature, what we used to be. And and we will often serve uh, our adversary in that way. And so but both of those things, we have to hold intention in the Christian life. We have to keep telling ourselves and keep pursuing Christ and saying, look, I've been set free from sin. It no longer has dominion over me. So by God's grace. And by attending to my soul, I can seek righteousness. I can seek holiness. You know, the, the writer of Hebrews says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're to strive for that holiness. And, and it's a holiness that we're to seek after. And if we don't, we won't see the Lord, is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And yet, I also know that this holiness will not be perfected in this life because I'm still in this flesh, I'm still in this world, I'm still confronted by my adversary. And that's the Romans 7 reality. 
And so then you get to Romans 8, and you're told there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So you have to remind yourself of that, even as you find that you fall into sin once again, you repent once again, you confess once again, and you remind yourself of Romans 6 again, and you charge ahead again. What what specific issues did you see in the PCA that that forced you guys to say, we need to deal with this? We need to make sure that sanctification is a priority, and our understanding of sanctification is a priority to our pastors, which will trickle down through our churches. Yeah, I, I think you know some dear brothers. I, I think had the right motive, um, and have had the right motive. And I wouldn't say it's just in the PCA. I would say it's been in the broader Reformed uh, community um, over probably the past uh, five, six, seven years. Um, and I think much of it is motivated by um, a real concern for the people under their care, uh, for the sheep and their churches, is, um, I think, coming out of fundamentalism. I think a lot of people have wrestled with guilt and have just been weighed down by guilt that uh, they don't look like how they think they should look in Christ. And uh, they're wrestling with the fact that uh, they don't do these things that they want to do. And... I think we have to be tender to that. There are a lot of our people, and, and I know I do at times, you know, struggle with this sense of guilt. Um, and, and I think a, a lot of men were trying to free their congregations, their people from this guilt, maybe themselves from guilt, by by uh, by promoting what I think is something that's been very harmful, a, a, a kind of antinomianism. Uh, it was you, such language as um, we just need to get, get used to our justification, um, whereas everything was looking back to our justification. Um, there's there's a incredible benefit to looking back to our justification. It's something that we should do regularly and, and uh, consistently. But that's not enough. Uh, we do look back to our justification, but we're also to strive forward in sanctification. Hmm. And part of sanctification is looking back to our justification, but that's not all of it. Part of it is as well uh, seeking to honor God in my body, and seeking to honor him in my mind, and seeking to, to seek him in my soul. And, um, and this is something that I think has been downplayed in uh, circles, uh, our circles, over the last five or six or seven years. And uh, there were some of us that felt like it had risen enough to a level that uh, we needed to... Uh, to try and get out a biblical view of sanctification um, and and reassert that, and I would say you know there has been a wonderful response throughout the reform community in, in different quarters by different uh, groups of people that have also had this concern, and, um, and I would say that I'm very encouraged by the trajectory now of, of uh, our reformed uh, denominations and networks and and things along these lines. Jason, I just want to thank you for taking the time with us today, sharing your story, uh, giving us your insights, everything from the doctrine of sanctification to family worship to church planting. We, we've discussed quite a bit in this hour, and I just want to thank you for giving us the time, and uh, I thank the Lord for your brother richly and deeply. Well, thank you, Aaron. Joy to be with you and be with your listeners. Have a great week, everyone. Facebook.